0: People say, I am the best boss. They go, God, we've never worked in a place like this before. And you get the best out of us. I think that pretty much sums it up. Hi there. Welcome back to another episode of Good Boss, Bad Boss. I'm your host, Joey. And today I'm talking to my friend, Devin Bramhall. She's a growth advisor, co-host of Don't Say Content, former CEO of Animals, and no stranger to anyone in the content marketing world. We met in New York for the first time when I started working for 360 Learning right before COVID. Fun fact, you can actually watch our first meeting in episode four of Onboarding Joey, my docuseries. Devon has an incredible journey going from marketing manager to director to VP, and then to CEO. In her last role, she literally asked for her boss's job and got it. Devon knows what she wants and is not afraid to ask for it. But what exactly happens when you become CEO? Not a lot of us have the opportunity to experience being the boss of all bosses, but we all have certain images and notions in our minds. Power suits, important meetings, personal assistants, calling all the shots, like in the movies, right? Well, Devin's experience was slightly different and she's here to share her firsthand experience of what being a CEO means. So let's get right into it. Hey Devin, welcome to the show. I am so happy to be here with you specifically. I am so excited too. We have met, I think, literally twice in real life, but I feel like I've known you for a long time just watching your journey and probably you watching mine.
1: (laughs) Well, we worked together too, not directly, but our companies worked together. It's funny, you were so close in terms of proximity and work. And then I feel like I spent most of my time following you through onboarding with Joey.
0: Yes. For people who don't know know you, do you want to introduce yourself just a little bit? Who you are? Who you've been? Tell us about yourself and your journey to becoming a manager. Did you ask to become a manager? So from that angle. The first thing I ever saved for,
1: I was nine, was a real life cash register. I wanted an actual cash register from the store and I worked my butt off to get it. And by the time I got the money, I went back to the store where I'd seen one. It was at a BJ's or a Costco. They didn't have the exact one that I had wanted before. So I didn't buy any of them. If that's not a tell for the future, like I don't know what is. I was really into calculators and cash registers and then really particular about what I wanted and worked really hard for it. Definitely started as a child. And I did absolutely go after management from the beginning of my career. Like I tended to move up quickly because I would dive deeper into the things I was doing than people expected and get really good at it. And this is down to things as small as my first job out of college was as a secretary slash billing support for our accounting team. And I reorganized the printer room behind us, changed processes. I just really went after each task that was put upon me, no matter how small, and that tended to help me move up. Two times that I remember was very deliberate about it. It started at SpringPad, honestly. I wanted to move from customer support into content marketing. Didn't have any experience. First, tech job. And then I found another job so that I could go to them and not be worried because I didn't mention it to them. I didn't say I got another job, but I... Wanted to feel secure in having the conversation. Small company, you don't really have of options to move back and forth. Got to be a content marketer. And then nine months later, another company approached me about working for them. They wanted me to do customer support again. And I used that to own two departments. I was like, I don't want that job. And so I kept saying no. And he was like, well, what do you want? And I was like, I will run customer support if you give me a team who I can hire to run it for me. And I want to run the marketing department. I mean, it's a tiny company. It was 18 people.
0: But I guess you had to be pretty good for you to have bargaining power. Otherwise, it will be like, okay, well, you don't want to do this job. We're going to find someone else instead of you. So you probably were pretty good at whatever you're doing or you had a good reputation that gave you that.
1: I was actually kind of a thorn in people's sides. But yeah, my thorniness is what made me effective in certain areas and pushing things through. And then I worked really hard.
0: And then later on, that helped you get to more of a middle manager role and then director and then well it's funny because help scout was a negotiation
1: they'd invite me to apply it was a dream job they were hiring for a director so i like hired into that jump and then <laughs> with animals in my first year we were in an off-site with the leadership team this is legendary you've heard the story before but i just pointed right at walter and i was like i want your job man <laughs> and then he gave it to me like a few months later
0: did you Plan that? Did you know that you wanted the job and you wanted to tell that to him or it was the spur of the moment? Like he asked everybody what their next move potentially could be. And then you thought that's it at that time.
1: So Haley and I have been planning to run the company together all along because Walter, to his credit, spent a good amount of time working with a coach Cecilia Landholt. She's amazing. She was my coach too. Deciding what he wanted from his life and realized that he liked to start businesses. He didn't love running them. He asked that question for a reason.
0: For people who don't know, Walter was the CEO and then Haley was the VP ops when you were the VP marketing.
1: Yeah. I think a lot of leaders, even if they're open enough to come to the conclusion that leadership and power are two different things, it's hard to give up power Leadership is very difficult and often not that rewarding. They can't let their hands off things. And Walter did an okay job at it and continued to do better, which I think is like the highest form of praise that you can give someone trying to turn over their company because it's really hard.
0: So it's like you wanted to be in a position where you'll be able to make the most impact and in this situation, it's the CEO of this content marketing agency. So it wasn't necessarily wanting to be a CEO per se.
1: I didn't want to be CEO in general, like that wasn't the career pursuit. My desire was always around impact, not power. And the only things that interested me about power were how I could change the work experience for others to be better than mine coming up because mine was abominable
0: (laughs) like how different was it to manage a team as a middle manager versus managing a team as the ceo i'm assuming that managing a team as a ceo is like you have to think beyond your team you have to think about the whole company and how all the different pieces work together but i would love to hear if you have more thoughts on this it's completely different
1: you're making big blanket decisions to try to serve as many people as possible fairly, but it's not fair. No decision you ever make is fair completely to everyone. Your company decisions should be fundamentally team-based, but again, sometimes you have to make decisions just about the company to be able to have a company that at least most of the people can still be employed at. Those are actually deeply important because if the company fails, no one has a job. So it's unfair to some people and fair to others, and that's just the way the world works there second this was a situation we had at animals so there was a cohort of the team we were a global agency so we had teams all over the world all full-time for the most part everybody was employed had a full-time load of work there was a cohort that wanted benefits for family members like kids and spouses there was a bunch of people getting more disgruntled about the fact that we were not adding this benefit so i did math in the all hands. I was like, here is our balance sheet. Here's what goes into COGS. Here's what goes into all the other stuff. I took like a flat number. I'm like 10 million, broke it down. I'm like, most of this goes to a few people making the product because we're a service business, right? And I said, the benefit that you want costs all the money and then some that we have For any type of team benefit, whether it's perks or insurance, it takes more than what we're already spending, way more. We have 130 people, 40% are outside the U.S., which means this benefit wouldn't apply to them. There's no global benefits. Of the folks in the United States, not even 50% were parents. So if you want me to give you this benefit that you're screaming about, please know 80% of the company gets Nothing. In addition to, they're going to get their perks removed. This is millions of dollars a year to offer this benefit. One thing I wish I could take back was explaining myself all the time. Transparency definitely helped in the beginning, but over time, it just makes everyone feel like they know more than they do. It's more important to draw boundaries around what you will and will not tender from folks. Being transparent where appropriate and just getting better at firing people who are misbehaved to the detriment of the rest of the culture.
0: Did you find yourself in situations where you had to balance protecting the company versus protecting the team's interests?
1: Yeah, that's always a balance.
0: What I wish had been
1: different was that the team could see how I prioritize them more. I think this might have also been a product of 2021 and 2022 when everyone was just mad constantly, no matter what you did. There was a sort of like vocal minority who kept saying things like, Devin cares about growth at all costs, which I don't think they know what that phrase means.
0: You mentioned in another podcast how you've let go of your people-pleasing tendency ever since becoming CEO. I guess it relates to what you mentioned about well, people will just nonstop complain or they will hate on things and you just at some point need to let go of wanting to please everybody because that's not possible.
1: Once you become CEO, there's a target on your back from all ends. Your job is to answer all the things that literally no one else in your team can answer. I wish I had a different word for this, but it's actually good for the overall organization that you as CEO own people's negative feelings sometimes because somebody needs to be held accountable.
0: Yeah. Leadership is Making the tough calls is sometimes doing the hard things that you don't wanna do because it needs to be done. Otherwise, the whole team suffers. The
1: hard things are doing things that are good for the team that you know they will hate you for. Because I can do hard things all day long. Life is about doing things you don't really wanna do sometimes for the overall benefit of your whole self. But in leadership, you have to do that. And that works because people's feelings are fleeting. Holistically, you're doing a good job and you have people's trust. You can use some of that trust you built, do something you know will overall positively impact the company, like layoffs. This whole idea that layoffs are not people first is bothersome to me because, one, not all layoffs are the same. But there is a thing where laying people off can be overall good for the culture because if the company fails, nobody wins.
0: Same as uh, freezing raises. Sometimes you have to not give people a raise when times are tough. So then you don't have to lay people off. That's a choice that we've made on our end. We were in a lucky place where we didn't have to, but I don't
1: like that one. You're right. It is necessary sometimes.
0: It's tough situations where you have to be like, do we want to give people raises or do we want to fire like 10% of the team? Stuff like that. Where you're like, well, everybody suffers a little so then everybody can stay. Such a great
1: example because those are the types of things that you're sort of evaluating different levels of bad. Yeah. Not all the time, not all the time, but that's a lot of it.
0: And about people that you can't trust, who did you go to for honesty? Because you do say you know everything, but you kind of don't know anything at the same time. And people, sometimes they're two-faced. They have like a certain type of behavior in front of you. And then sometimes behind your back, they say or do different things. How was it like for you? Who did you go to? Was it people that you kind of was close to before you became CEO or?
1: At first I led with trust. And I learned that you can't completely do that. And that doesn't have to be like a demoralizing thing. It doesn't have to make you sad. It's just a reality. You sort of find out everything as CEO without looking for it. And that's the thing that's really interesting is like you would have – People sell each other out to you and you're like, I didn't ask you about this. So you see it across the board. More people are talking about other people than they believe, especially people who think they have complete loyalty. I'm like, you're being sold up the river too. And it's just the reality of work. It's not a big deal.
0: When you said in the beginning you started by leading with trust, what did that mean? Like you just assume the best of everyone. You give them benefit of the doubt. Especially the people close to me.
1: And I would say that was a mistake. You just need to remember that no matter how much you like the people around you, that you're not friends, even if you're friends outside of work. But inside work, you're not friends. And you just need to remember that. It's almost like don't trust anyone, but like trust them. That never stopped being a thing. So the people I ended up trusting were other CEO friends. People outside who have no conflict of interest can still talk. My strategy was find CEO friends who demonstrated that I could trust them. It's a little bit of a leap in the beginning, but it usually was measured on how much they shared in the vault. If our trades on vault, the vault were equally as catastrophic if it came out, that was where I learned that I could trust them. We were in it together. We were both being vulnerable to the same degree.
0: That's my approach to leadership when I was sharing a bit too much with my team. If I share enough with them, then they share with me. And then, you know, there's trust. We know that we have each other's backs. But I guess it's kind of different when there is a power dynamic.
1: It's just that all internal comms, no matter what leadership level you're at, manager and above, all has to be strategic and planned out. Even your authenticity. Leadership is really hard. Power is something that you can literally be born into. But leadership was a big growth thing because that's where I actually learned something. And I had to earn it. My belief is that you absolutely should lead with input, but there needs to be boundaries on how much input you look for. You need to be honest about how that input is going to be used or not used so your team doesn't feel taken advantage of. Because a fundamental belief that goes into someone's brain without thinking that if you ask something, a change will happen. So you just need to be really clear about that. So I would say I would be a lot more delicate and reticent about getting feedback than I was because it can set the team up to feel bad too, even though your intentions are the exact opposite.
0: Yeah. Asking for feedback versus leading by consensus or making decisions by consensus are different things. And like you said, it's about setting expectations of I asked for feedback, but it doesn't mean that I'm gonna do what you asked for just purely because it's not possible because everybody's asking for a different thing. So it's literally impossible. And also I think as a leader, your job is also not to be a pushover and have a stance. Stand for something that somebody probably will disagree with because you believe it's the right thing to do. Totally share your point of view there.
1: And make sure you point out every single time you've implemented the team's feedback and do it constantly because memories are very short.
0: So I want to now ask you how it was like being a female CEO. Did you feel like you were being held in a different way or judged differently? How was that like for you?
1: I learned that even as CEO, there was still unfairness around opportunities that were available I think to a certain degree, no matter what, I would have encountered behavior of some kind that wasn't pleasant. So I can't say all of it was gendered, but I would say by and large, I did not feel adequately supported as a female CEO. This led to me quitting because the level of perfection that you have to across the board became so untenable. It's like I was given the most responsibility, but like the least ownership.
0: I remember having that discussion with you when we met in New York about how you don't own a bit of the company. Do you think that would have made a big difference? It's not about the financial, like, it's
1: about the ownership inside. Look, money is the way you express it in business. And obviously, I'm not like, oh, I don't want to make money. Of course I do. I'm an ambitious person. I want to make money. I have goals. My beliefs were so strong. At the end of the day, no matter what I believed, because I didn't have any stake it was always reliant on walter and i agreeing which we did we had the same north star and that kept us together it didn't matter if we didn't agree on the how. that's how you learn from each other but i had no stake in the future and he could just change his mind at any point and say that's what we're doing the only options i have are trying to convince him to do something else or compromise
0: or leave
1: that doesn't feel like a true partnership
0: It was powerful to hear that and the experience. I'm sure it was a lot for you. And thank you for sharing that with me and with us. I
1: am not a victim. I invited all of this. I got to be CEO of a company. That's freaking awesome. And it came with some things, some life lessons that broke my heart. It absolutely broke my heart because I was naive in my beliefs about leading a company and being a boss. And I had to learn those by doing it. And I'm glad that I did. It made me much more sober.
0: You said that when you were managing managers, you found that there were people who are good at evaluating work, and then there are people who are good at evaluating people and whether they're the right fit for the company. So I think that is quite an interesting, and the first time I heard about that distinction of what makes a good manager.
1: There are multiple good manager profiles, and the majority of what makes a manager good is putting them in the right place that will unlock all of the things that are good innately inside them and make learning all the difficult things rewarding for them. I believe it's not really hard. It just took me a long time to figure that out. So there are people who are really good at evaluating more tangible things like the creative work, you know, like a creative director is excellent at the work, but maybe at least historically not always the best managers across the board, right? Or they're not known necessarily for being the best managers. I'm sure there are plenty. And I think I would fall into this category a little bit where, or mostly where you're good at leading people. And so you're good at drawing the work out from your team, helping them realize their own potential, helping them grow and thus elevating themselves and through that elevating you. I think that's really important in knowing the difference between the two, especially if you're running any type of, creative department or company, one piece of advice that I have is if you're hiring someone to lead a team, don't hire the team before you hire them. If the team already exists, fine. But I've had multiple people that I've advised for who are saying that they were going to bring in this person at this level. And they're like, but first I have to hire this doer. And I was like, no way. I have been the product of taking over multiple teams of existing people. I think when it comes to your creative people, like you just need to create a bubble around them. Maybe they shouldn't lead the team. (laughs) You know, and just create that buffer because you need them to be exactly who they are in order to get the best work out of them. Although I have to say, I've had a lot of bad bosses, but I still learned a lot from all of them. And it's usually the real mean ones that I learned a lot from. I would never go back to that because I had a horrible, anxiety-ridden, bullied upbringing.
0: Same, I hated the whole experience of working with bad bosses. But then you learn the most. You're either like, I will learn how to never be like that person. Or they made you go through hell. So you just upgraded your resilience, your attention to detail. So you mentioned that you had a lot of bad bosses. Would you say you had mostly good or bad bosses in your career? Bad. Okay. Without
1: question. (laughs) One hand, I can count the good ones. So
0: not so fun or fun
1: anecdotes that you want to share. One time, my CEO told me while drunk after some dinner or something that he didn't use his veto card on me like that was supposed to make me feel better like he didn't want to hire me the hiring team pressured him and the best he could offer was that he just didn't veto me out
0: is he saying that to say now I changed my mind or is he saying that to say I never liked you and still don't
1: I don't know that level of crazy, so I can't tell you. He didn't like me for a very long time. Then he did, and then he didn't. But by then, it was because I was misbehaving, so it was fine. Oh, I once had a boss say, after said meltdown in front of the entire company on HipChat, even the senior leadership team was like, what was that? That was very strange, and he never explained it. Never said sorry. I tried to force him to have a chat with me, And he did not show up in person. I was like, I don't want to do this over the phone. Refused. We talked on the phone and he said that if he weren't married, he would try to date me. That means that he likes me actually. And that he assumed I knew it was a joke. I was like, maybe you should tell your C-suite that. Because they also don't know and can't explain it. (laughs) Oh, I remember one time I'd put together this elegant project management plan for this big thing we were going to do. And we had the kickoff and the CEO wasn't happy with it. Even though I had Trello boards organized, it's possible it wasn't perfect. Right. But instead of helping me make it better, he brought me into a conference room and told me he understands that that's something I'm not good at. So he's just going to take over for me to help. And he did a terrible job.
0: These are obviously terrible bosses moments I feel like the worst ones are ones that are not too bad. It's not bad enough so that you report them to HR, but it builds up over time and it kind of wears you down. The funny thing is with all this talk about company culture, it actually hasn't changed
1: much, especially on the DEI stuff and inclusivity because you can't measure it because measuring it makes the people you're hiring be, feel tokenized. It basically means that people get away with talking about it without making any progress because the numbers are what matter are there more people from minority groups in positions of power? It makes it easy for people to pretend like they are doing the work and they're not doing the work and behind the scenes, they're total freaking monsters. Awareness isn't enough. This is what always bugged me. And this was like a, a CEO thing that really frustrated me. The goals that we achieved were in our OKRs. You don't achieve something you don't go after. And the way we had to approach DEI was so sideways. I mean, sure, it kind of works, but you also just kind of have to be deliberate about it. And it sucks that that also makes people feel bad because I've been a diversity hire. It doesn't always feel great, but I was like, at the end of the day, that was my first management job in marketing. And that led to a few more roles in management director, and then very quickly VP and CEO of a fucking awesome company. That's kind of the balance. But yeah, the progress thing hurts my soul because no matter how much. We're talking about it. I don't actually think we're making as much progress as we could be and should be.
0: So now I want to move to the part where we talk about your career. So I wanted to ask you, did you always know what you want and are not afraid to ask for it? I think the answer is yes. Has that helped you in your experience as a boss? Does it make you more likely to ask your team to do the same, encourage people to advocate for themselves? Did it make it harder for you to manage people who are not like you, who just want to be told what to do? Because not everybody is proactive and, you know, a go-getter. How was that like for you? There
1: were pros and cons. The leading pro is that it made me a good coach and mentor, and still does. It helped me unearth people's confidence and bravery. They still had to do the work, but I'm a pretty loud and compelling voice in that area. The downside is it became a personal flaw where I thought everybody was like me, not consciously. It led to certain blind spots. It led to leadership flaws where I just expected people were going to go after what they wanted. And sometimes they were not able to, and I wished I had seen that. I still think it's fundamentally, we've babied this workforce such that they think that nothing is their responsibility and they're victimized constantly. So at this point, I'm kind of like, I actually probably wouldn't do anything differently because I'm like, there needs to be a shred of ownership on your own career. It's lacking to such an appalling degree, but I mean, you know, it was something I had to be conscious of and manage myself against so that I didn't make other people feel bad because I was ambitious.
0: Something very interesting that I heard from your own podcast that you discussed with Margaret was how the hierarchy or the org chart is kind of a made up thing. And I guess as CEO, you see that. Basically everything under me can move around and change at any time, but people just feels like things are fixed and that cannot be challenged. I
1: didn't technically climb the ranks. I took ownership of my career and leveraged title bumps, salary bumps. I took way more ownership at work than I was given. I put in a lot of effort because that's what I wanted to do. And so I think nowadays it feels very tit for tat. I remember feeling that at animals a lot. They were like, well, I will do the exact confines of the specific things that are on paper for my job and I won't do any more. Why aren't you promoting me?
0: Yeah, I've met those people and I would say like, I'm sorry, but you're not going to go very far with that mindset.
1: But again, not everybody wants to grow either. So the important thing is like, I am an example of what I wanted. I'm not an example for everyone. Some people love to remain individual contributors and kind of like grow in that way. And like, sure, there's probably a ceiling at your company for that path, but there's not a ceiling in life for you with that path because you can use those individual contributor skills outside of work to grow other areas of your life, either within that or elsewhere.
0: It's more for people who say they want more, but then are not willing to put in more is where the problem lies. It's like, are your expectations in line with how much you're putting in?
1: And I understand it. It's like, okay, to get ahead, you have to do more, but why can't your job description be enough? But it's just work isn't finite. We create structure to be able to keep the thing on the rails and grow it. But structure is a farce, just like the hierarchy. Yeah, you need those rules in order to prevent chaos. But job descriptions too. It's like, If you find an area where you can be useful and you care about it and you're excited about it and then you are intentional about leveraging that to get ahead at your company or elsewhere, you need that gray area. I leveraged gray area to grow in my career constantly. That's pretty much the only way it happened, and by being kind of a pain in the ass.
0: Yeah, and everything could be changed and negotiated and challenged, especially in tech and in startups where things are so like fluid and needs change, goals change every few months. It takes a special kind of personality to thrive in these situations. But also, like I hear that not everybody is trying to climb up and that's fine. And we need people like that for stability and foundations. God forbid There's a lot of me out there. I have a whole company of Devin's.
1: No, it'd be horrible.
0: But I think what made it work for you is you were willing to take the bad sides along with the good You wanted to be CEO. It was super hard. It was like huge learning experience. It was amazing for you because you get to do all of that. But like you're taking the good with the bad. You can't just be like, I want more responsibility, but then I don't want to be a target. I don't want to have to make the tough decisions. I don't want to do what my job description describes. Right. Because you need a bigger vision
1: in your career. If you're in a place where you want to change anything in any particular way, there has to be a greater vision. I will always look back on my time as CEO and wish that it didn't happen during the pandemic. Because I think a lot of what I experienced in the negative side was unique to a tumultuous era. And I didn't know what it was like to lead in peacetime. And I think that that could have restored me, but it was just constant emergency all the time from multiple different things that happened over the past couple of years to everyone. I will always regret that, but ultimately that's a couple steps below the vision. My big vision is like, holy shit, I changed as a person in a good way. I think I'm a better person now. I'm calmer. Even the frustrations I have about people that happened and things that make me sad, I'm like, wow, I understand more things better. And I feel really lucky that I got to have that experience because quite honestly, I am now living the best version of myself thus far in my life. And I would say that I haven't spent a lot of time in a place where I felt really good because if I hadn't gone to the top, I think I never would have found what I was really meant to do. I needed to reach this highest place to calm me down and get me focused on the path that I wanna go on. Now, does that mean I'm never gonna lead a company again? Almost certainly not. I can't help it, but I think this time I'll be able to do it for myself, and so that will be awesome and really fucking hard in new ways. I made this agreement with myself after Animals, If you want me to run your company, because a few people had reached out to explore that with me, but I'm like, okay, I use a million as a base salary. And also that's a very small amount if you're trying to run a bigger company, but for the level of experience that I have, I want a big amount of money off the bat. I want strong ownership stake, whatever that looks like. The requirements were so much that at least in startups, like that's definitely not happening. So I will never run another person's company again.
0: All right. So we're going to close off with some rapid fire questions. First, are good bosses born or made? It's nature and nurture. What's one myth about being a boss that
1: you want to debunk? Firing is more important than you think. Being nice to people doesn't make you a good boss. And boundaries are real important.
0: You got to fire people. I know. I've been there. Oh. And then you end up sacrificing a lot of other things that you should be focusing on. The two things you mentioned are related. Being nice doesn't make you a good boss. And firing sometimes is more important than you think. Because for a long time, I tried to be the nice boss, protecting people and keeping them for longer than I should. And then, you know, it kind of comes and bite me in the ass.
1: I'm going to remember that forever. I want that to be a meme of just you.
0: But I'll try to find it from the recording and make it a meme. I don't know if this is the right question for you but given the choice would you prefer to be a manager or an individual contributor
1: i would choose a leadership position i will Mm. never choose to be a manager again that is probably one of the worst jobs in the world in my opinion that and cmo are terrible to me personally (laughs) but it doesn't matter what my choice is because the decision is really about the individual
0: if you could go back in time give yourself your younger self one piece of management advice what would it be? Is it maybe similar to the myths that you mentioned or different? Just keep doing what you're doing. I wouldn't change anything.
1: I didn't get here by making right decisions. I mostly got here by making wrong ones and
0: learning from it. You know what I mean? You're the kind of person that if you're given a time machine, you're not going to change anything going back in time because you just want yourself to go through that experience the way it had.
1: I don't want to. I hated it. But like, This was the course. I think that the back in time questions is like a little bit of a playing God moment. It's assuming that I know more than the universe about what I need to grow. Other people should follow that advice too. Just stop worrying about it. Just keep going and just be really self-aware and have people around you that force yourself in front of you, which is almost exclusively my friends. But- I don't think you should try to change things. I think you should take what's happened and change yourself and change the world around you based on that.
0: Do you have a book or any resource that had a significant impact on your management approach? The Tao of Leadership. I found it before I was
1: a boss. I think I was like a manager at the time. And I found it in Greensboro, North Carolina at a secondhand bookstore. I don't even know if they print it anymore, but this is a really old book. And I looked back on it throughout my journey to CEO and found comfort in it and just helped me think about things differently.
0: Okay. In one sentence, what does being a
1: good boss mean to you? Bringing out people's potential and helping them turn their passion into skill. Great. Love that.
0: Thank you for sharing it.
1: Happy to. This was actually quite nice for me too. I'm just like, oh, talking to you, it's more, you know, it's talking to a friend versus being interviewed. So I like it.
0: I hope you enjoyed our chat as much as I did. If you enjoyed listening to Devin today, don't hesitate to check out her own podcast, Don't Say Content, which she co-hosts with Margaret Kelsey. If you have a story you want to share with me, leave me a message on SpeakPipe. The link is in the show notes and I may feature your message in an upcoming episode. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to share with someone, rate and review. You can subscribe to my Substack so you don't miss another episode. I'll see you next time. Bye.